Good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm Mark Gallagher, the principal of Kaimiki Christian School. I'm privileged this morning to speak to you as part of this series we're having this summer on redeeming relationships. I'm going to be speaking about redeeming the church, or more specifically about restoring the church, talking about a movement called the Restoration Movement. It began in America in the early 1800s, and churches like KCC, Kamiki Christian Church, are both uh, recipients of this heritage and active participants, along with about 5,000 or so congregations uh, in the U.S. Rather than jumping right into the 1800s where uh, the American Restoration Movement uh, starts, I'm going to spend some time laying a groundwork of the history of the church from its beginning. My intention is to help answer the question, one, why did we need what's called the Reformation Movement led by Martin Luther and others back in the 1500s? And then having had the Reformation, why do we 300 years later need a Restoration Movement? So uh, please fasten your belts and we're going to take a bit of a little fast march through church history. In your bulletin, there are a few uh, places if you choose to, you can fill in some blanks. And then I also have a number of PowerPoint slides, not all of which are related to your bulletin that we'll be sharing. So the first uh, in your bulletin, first item is that, and I'm gonna be kind of covering it by different sections. I'm gonna call the first section, the early church from 30 AD to 300 AD. And in that period, the church understood that it, the church, was the bride of Christ. It was the body of Christ. It was a community, Greek word koinonia, the community of God's children who gathered together to worship God, to devote himself, themselves to his word, to pray and to share in the Lord's Supper and to work together to fulfill the Great Commission, which was to make disciples of all the nations. So this early church was very relationship-oriented, part of being God's family, being the bride of Christ, being the body of Christ. That was the emphasis, was on living out what it meant to be these things. As such, they stood out. And they represented a challenge and even were seen as a threat to the power centers in, in life, whether they be government, religious, or social or economic. And these groups, particularly in the arena of government and religion, sought to, quash, to squash this movement, to kill it through persecution. The first major source of persecutions 
was the Jewish religious leaders. And the next slide, symbolizing this persecution, this was an artist depiction of the stoning of Stephen, who's known as the first Christian martyr. And there to the side we see standing by some cloaks, that's Saul, who at that time was the leading persecutor of the church. Saul, of course, later converted himself and became the subject of persecution that he, himself, he had himself been such a leader of. The next major group responsible for persecuting Christians was the Roman government. As the church grew, and they grew rapidly, they became a known factor in the eyes of Rome. And Rome didn't like that the fact that they wouldn't worship the emperor, whose name Augustus, to be august, had a divine connotation to it, uh, didn't believe in worshiping the many Latin and Greek gods, only one god. And they didn't like that um, Christians stood up for what they saw as immoral or um, just plain, we call it sin, sinful behavior. And so when, when Rome burned, the Emperor Nero, maybe you've heard the saying, well, Rome burned, Nero fiddled. I don't know that he literally did that, but he was an inept emperor. And to divert attention from people questioning what kind of emperor allowed Rome to burn and didn't have a plan in place to contain it, which he didn't. He came up with the idea of using Christians as a scapegoat and sent out the word that Christians had intentionally set fire that started this uh, conflagration. He saw that the people adopted this or accepted this lie. And so to further entertain them or divert them from issues uh, with his ineptness, he started sending them to the Colosseum. And this picture here depicts, this is from an early fresco, um, them being sent to certain death uh, before the lions and also before gladiators. In the next slide, we can see that this persecution also meant that it was very dangerous to publicly gather together to worship. So those in Rome either met in houses secretly or went into caves underground that are called catacombs and worshiped there, spent a lot of time there. Uh, we're blessed that there were still original uh, drawings or paintings on the walls of the catacombs, this being one of them. And in the lower part and kind of to the center, you can see two fish. The fish, which represented in the Greek language, ichthus, Jesus Christ, Son of God and Savior, was a very important symbol to these early Christians. Well, we know from history that this effort to get rid of Christians by persecuting them actually backfired. It was not easy to be a Christian in this era. You needed to 
really believe what the faith talked about. You had to be willing to stand up and suffer consequences in, in, in opposition to this persecution. And this impressed non-Christians. They said, whoa, unlike uh, our gods and the followers of our gods, these people uh, really have convictions and it really seems to make a difference in their life. So the Christian faith spread like, really like wildfire through what we uh, refer to back then as the known, known to the uh, uh, Roman Empire, within the Roman Empire. We go to the next period, 300 to 600 AD. It begins in 13, 12, sorry, uh, 313 AD. The environment in which Christians lived changed dramatically in this year when the Emperor Constantine issued an edict stating that the Christian faith was no longer to be persecuted. It was to be recognized as an acceptable religion in, within the Roman Empire. He himself claimed to have seen a vision from God the year, a year before and was doing what he thought best as emperor in the years after that to protect the interests of the church, but at the same time not forgetting that he was emperor of the Roman Empire. And oftentimes his, his initiatives uh, blurred together and blended. Uh, by recognizing the church as having legal status, then... No longer did the Christians have to meet in the catacombs or their homes, in which environment the focus was on us. Now they began putting a lot of time and energy into building churches and basilicas and cathedrals. And the next slide shows one of the early examples of that. This symbolizes the emphasis that began to be gaining more and more attention to talk about organizational structures, and physical aspects of the faith. One not-so-good thing is that the church became rich in this era. Now that it was recognized as by the state, you could openly, in your will or your legacy, leave land and money to the church. And the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church encouraged that. We'll talk more about that later. But just to jump ahead for a second, um, in 1500, before the start of the ref, what's called the Reformation, in England, the Roman Catholic Church owned one-third of the, all the land. So that gives you a sense of the power and the wealth that it had accumulated. The emperor used his power as the head of the government to call together church leaders from throughout the empire and what was called councils or synods. And he had them sit down and say, we all got to have the same idea of what we're about as, as the church. And so let's come up with what one has to believe. And anything that you don't agree on that we hear about, well, you can count on me and my army. We're going to deal with those people. 
Um, Constantine started the practice of pain for pain the bishops who the Roman Catholic Church had elevated among in, in the New Testament, we believe it. Uh, bishop is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word elder. He elevated bishops, or he supported the elevation of bishops by the papacy above uh, the elders. Okay, well, is that a bad thing that the, there's money to pay the bishops? Well, I think in America we know that when the government gives money, it's uh, not without strings attached. <laughs> And that became more and more evident as the centuries went on in the Roman Catholic Church. So in sum, what this meant is that um, by 600, the church, along with its rapid expansion, that is taking the church into the world, more of the world came into the church. The next period is 600 to 1300. Historians in general call this the Middle Ages. Sometimes they use a more technical term, medieval ages. But when we're talking about church history, we, we use the term the Dark Ages. For truly, in many ways, the light of Christ was either uh, severely dimmed or extinguished, it seems. The picture of what the church was really intended for was lost. Several factors that contributed to this is that by 600 AD, the Roman Empire had uh, fallen apart. And in Rome, this left a power vacuum. And the Roman Catholic Church was more than willing to step into there and, uh, and assume power. Unfortunately, not so much spiritual power as temporal or worldly power. And the Pope became, in many ways, the head of the uh, Western Empire. Today, all that's left of that is a little postage stamp-sized country called the Vatican. But back then, he truly ruled much of uh, the Western world, Europe, and Northern Africa, and even parts of the Middle East. All these, these different things uh, open the door for this a real strain away from the teachings of the Bible. The papacy itself became a real embarrassment. Uh, the Pope became elevated in, in privileges and instead of being a servant became one who looked to be served, developed elaborate garments that uh, might be more fitting for royalty. Um, the Pope, well, priests, uh, the Roman Catholic Church in, uh, introduced the teaching that priests could not be married. So the Pope was the lead priest. He couldn't get married, so uh, unfortunately there's a lot of uh, documented instances of having concubines and illegitimate children. Anybody know the word nepotism? And where it comes from, what, anybody know? What, where's the root to the word nepotism? Well, nepotism today means, and there's rules against it, a law, even laws against it in government, and in some businesses, is favoritism of a family member. But literally, the word nepotism is where we get the word nephew. 
So again, the priests couldn't marry. They couldn't have recognized children. So they appointed mostly nephews to positions of power um, in the church. Other, other doctrines, to just name a few, was the introduction of the veneration of Mary, the mother of God, and the teaching that you went and prayed to her to intercede with her son on your behalf. Uh, purgatory. Spend a little bit on this because it's important for the Reformation movement of the 1500s. Purgatory was an idea that the Catholics came up with that was an intermediary place between earth and heaven. So if you were uh, a good member of the church, when you died, excuse me, you were going to go to heaven, but not directly, not nonstop flight. <laughs> uh, purgatory is... Uh, where we get the English word purge, and specifically to purge as refined by fire. So purgatory was like uh, almost similarities to hell, but not for eternity, where everyone, unless you were given absolution, total absolution by the Pope, you're going to spend, um, depends how many sins you had to, to get cleaned out. Uh, it was conveyed this could take hundreds and even thousands and thousands of years. And the church found that this was a good way through the practice that developed called indulgences, that if you followed through on an indulgence, you could, according to the church, reduce your time in purgatory. So some ways you could do that was by uh, serving others or going on a pilgrimage. Not so bad. But one of the ways that began to be more and more promoted is you can get an indulgence by giving money to the church. <laughs> um, another teaching that we believe really has no uh, foundation in the Bible is infant baptism. Another uh, dark thing that happened is learning in general was declined. It was confined to monks in the monasteries. And the Catholic Church forbid that the average church member read the Bible. In fact, they weren't even allowed to touch the Bible. Just like they weren't allowed to touch the bread in communion. Well, other dark things happening in this period. Muhammad lived in 600s and he, through, mostly through force, and his followers through force, uh, spread the Islamic faith. This drawing symbolizes the use of force in this map here. I can't read the specifics, but just know that everything not in the yellowish, uh, by the end of this period we're talking about now, this is where Islam had spread to. Another dark development in this period was that in response to the spread of the faith of Islam, mostly through places where the Christian faith had been, um, the Pope called for the Crusades. The Crusades, the word comes from the, the Latin word crux, which means cross. So 
armies were sent out in the name of the cross to wage war against uh, the Islamic faith. In one of our songs we sang today, I, I noted we sang uh, Jesus who conquered the grave. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. The only crown he wore was the crown of thorns that was put on him as to mock him because he did not exert worldly or temporal power. But for over 200 years, of a succession of different crusades were sent out in the name of the Prince of Peace to wage war. The only lasting impact of that was to give fodder or ammunition to uh, Islam right up to the present to accuse and characterize Christians and Christian nations as being invaders. Another uh, dark spot in the church were internal persecutions known as the Inquisitions. The Inquisitions were quite active in the years 1100 through 1500. This is a period when more and more people became aware of, well, how far we've drifted from the original purpose of the church. And they began speaking up about that. And uh, when the church became aware of it, they were brought into trial. And the punishment could be banishment, exile, but torture was common. And uh, many uh, believers were burned at the stake or otherwise uh, killed. This leads us to the period 1300 to 1500. This is called the Renaissance by historians. Important for church history is in Northern Europe, the Renaissance saw the rise of a number of scholars who recaptured the Greek understanding of the Greek language and began to look back in the Bible and the early history to see what the church was about back in those days. And they were strong advocates. Many of them suffered great uh, consequences for it. The other key development of this period was the printing press. It was invented in 1452. And why it was so key is up to then, let's use the Bible. Uh, to make a copy of the Bible, you'd be very careful not to make a mistake. And it took a long time to make a copy. This made it easy, and it was a very expensive product in the end, which made it easy for the Catholic Church to uh, control who had access to the Bible. The, the first book off of the, what's called the Gutenberg Press was actually the Bible. So it now became relatively easy to print copies and to distribute it for the people to read it for themselves. Um, some of the key reformers in this era were um, Wycliffe. He was the first one to publish the Bible in the English language. And his heritage is recognized today. Some of you may have heard of the Wycliffe Bible translators. Another key reformer was John Huss. He was an admirer of Wycliffe, but uh, ended up being burned at the stake for his convictions. Uh, the last slide of this era was of 
Erasmus. He was a northern Renaissance man, a scholar. He was a master of the Greek language. He published the first edition of the Greek New Testament, a printed edition in 1516. This leads, this lays the foundation for the Reformation itself. One year after the Greek Bible was published, a young priest by the name of Martin Luther came to the attention of the Catholic Church. He, like all the other reformers before him, were Catholic priests himself and really sought to reform the church, the Catholic Church. That was their church. But because they were all without exception, ignored, and in many cases persecuted. Um, Martin Luther felt impelled to speak up in a very dramatic fashion. And what, he, he had a number of issues he wanted to debate with the church, but they refused to do it. But what led him to take a very dramatic step was that in 1517, an emissary from the Pope arrived in Wittenberg where his church was located. And this emissary was one of many individuals that the Pope was sending out at this time. Why? To, to get more money for the church. If we look at the next slide, what motivated this is the Popes in Rome decided we need a church, a cathedral, a, in this case a basilica, it just stands out above all others that have been built to this time. So we're looking at a picture of St. Peter's. I haven't been there, but uh, I've seen from the slides and heard from those who have. It is really an amazing uh, building and quite in some ways inspiring. The trouble is before it got nearly completed, the church ran out of money. So the Pope instructed these emissaries to go out and promote indulgences. Remember that indulgences were the way that you could uh, shorten your time in purgatory. And Tetzel, who was set to Wittenberg, was quite an effective salesman. And he promoted that this was a great way to shorten your time in purgatory. So he got a lot of money for that, but not enough. So then he begins emphasizing, well, you think you're okay, well, what about your parents or what about your children? Don't you have any heart for them? Don't you want to shorten their time in purgatory? And when Martin Luther heard about this, he became enraged and posted on the door of his church what's called the 95 Thesis, 95 things that he thought were wrong with the church and needed to be defended by the church if they were to practice them. Well, the church wasn't willing or interested in this. They saw him as a threat to their uh, gaining money to build St. Peter. And he had to really go into hiding and was fortunate that in Germany he found a prince there who didn't like what the Pope was doing, sucking money out of his territory to go to pay for uh, St. Peter's and other ways that he felt infringed on his power as prince of his realm. He uh, protected Luther. So within a few decades, the Roman church found that uh, its power was greatly reduced in Europe. The Roman church held on to southern Europe, closest to Rome, so Italy, France, Spain, and southern Germany. 
But the Reformation took hold in northern Germany, um, the Baltic region, and what we call Britain, uh, England, Wales, and Scotland. It truly did make uh, positive inroads into the abuses of the church. It got rid of the worst of them, like praying to Mary, um, the veneration of Mary. Um, it got rid of purgatory. It, it got rid of the idea that priests were a level higher than members of the church, Christi Christians in general. It no longer was it taught in these churches that you had to go to a priest for confession or go to a priest in order to uh, have your prayers be heard by God. Uh, one thing the Protestants, they're called Protestants, the Reformers did not address was infant baptism. And uh, we believe in Kaimiki Christian that this was a significant oversight on their part. No biblical uh, basis for infant baptism. So, uh, a lot of great things occurred, but unfortunately, with time, uh, the fervor died off, and these different churches got comfortable uh, being state churches themselves, maybe not of the scale of the Roman uh, Catholic Church. Um, and they began persecuting others who were called sects, S-E-C-T-S, from section, like a sectioning off of the church. And because most of the early settlers to America where the Restoration Movement started uh, came from England, I'm just going to use England to talk about a couple examples of what this meant. The, the state church, the Protestant church in England was called the Anglican church after Anglo-Saxon or England. That's where we uh, get Anglican. So it became the state church, and its head was uh, no longer the pope. Now it was the king of England. By the way, the reason this came about wasn't because of religious convictions. It was because the king was Henry VIII, who had many wives. And one of them that he wanted to divorce, he can't do that in the Catholic church, but the Pope was willing for the right price to annul marriages as if they had never happened. Uh, this wife happened to be the, I think, niece of the King of France, who was an ardent Catholic to begin with, uh, who didn't want to see his niece mistreated this way and had the power of the, uh, the French army to tell the, the Pope that if you annul the marriage of my niece, I'm going to gather my army and come down and kick you out. So the, the Pope wasn't willing to annul this particular marriage. What to do? Well, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, said to the king, well, just form your own church. Uh, you become the head of it, and then you can, uh, and I'll divorce, I'll bless you divorcing this wife. So it the Anglican Church became the State Church of England, and then the sects became the Puritans, and then the Methodists, and the Baptists in England. When these churches 
who got their name initially because Protestants because they protested against the Catholic Church, now were turning against each other and protesting against other Protestant churches um, known as denominations. This was carried over, this spirit was carried over into America. For instance, the Puritans who settled in New England, yes, we hear about it in school even today. Uh, they came to America seeking freedom of religion. But what we find is this actually meant freedom to practice their religion, not your religion. And so once the Puritans got set up, uh, they began uh, persecuting others, either at the stake or by exiling them or denying them uh, status as first-class citizens in all of New England except for Rhode Island where the Baptist uh, got established. Um, and the Anglicans did the same when down in the south, particularly Virginia, where they became the state's uh, church. After the Revolutionary War, we separated from England. Uh, we implemented a constitution. And in the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, the very first amendment was implemented because we did not want to be governed by a state church. We had suffered in England for that and even in colonial America. So churches um, could not be looking for government support, could not get uh, any government uh, to fund them or to uh, help them to state their position in opposition to other denominations. So in place of the uh, state church sect kind of situation, now rose up denominationalism. And I think I already filled that in for you by mistake in the in your bulletin insert. I'm going to pause and say that denomination in and of itself can mean simply to name. A couple examples of that is you pull out a $10 bill, we call that a denomination. It tells us how much that bill is worth. It names the value of the bill. Likewise, in fractions, if you can picture it in your mind, let's say one and then a line and then a seven. That one is called, anybody in math help me? What's that called? Numerator, thank you. It, it names the number, one or two or whatever the number is. But then there's a line and below that is called the, and what's the function of the denominator in a fraction? It's to divide the numerator to cause fractions. So the numerator is the church, it's the body of Christ. But the denominator, when it becomes denominationalism, serves to divide the body of Christ, bring in fractions to the church. And that was not good. So with this going on, um, by the early 1800s, several key individuals rose up and sought to uh, pursue the re restoration of primitive Christianity. Uh, one of these leaders was Alexander Campbell, and he packs 
right into this paragraph a lot. Tired of new creeds and parties and religion and the numerous abortive efforts to reform the Reformation. 300 years had passed since the Reformation and things were not getting better in many ways. Uh, we became convinced that the union of the disciples of Christ is essential to the conversion of the world. And a clear teaching on that is John chapter 17, verses 21 and 23. And that improving uh, any creed uh, is never going to get us there. It's not the basis for the union. We have to go back to the original blueprint, the Bible, the New Testament, to do that. A few individuals about the commencement of the present, that was the 19th century, began to reflect upon ways and means to restore primitive Christianity. So they, chose, they intentionally chose the word restoration, to restore. Go back to the master plans. Uh, let's not try and fix what we see. Let's try and go back as best as we can understand it and, and recreate what was established in the New Testament. Next couple slides illustrates this point. Uh, Laura came home one day with a table that looked pretty much like this, and she had a vision uh, of, of what this table looked like when it was originally created. And so I agreed with her, let's restore this table. We, we didn't want to reform it, we didn't want to put paint it over, chop its legs down, make it shorter, or this or that. We wanted to go back to, uh, to what we thought it originally looked like. After a lot of sanding and stripping of layers and layers of things, we, we were proud of what we ended up with in our dining room now. And that's what the, uh, the restoration movement leaders in the 1800s in America, that's what they had in mind. Restoring the bride, restoring the body in all its glory and its unity. Restoring the love that Jesus wanted to take place between believers. Restoring the sense of what it mean, meant to be in God's family. Um, the individuals aren't so key. I'm going to name a, a, some names, and if you're really interested, you can Google them. But the next slide, if we could bring up... Uh, Barton Stone, him. he was a Presbyterian minister who was kicked out of his form of Presbyterianism for preaching with enthusiasm and for associating with pastors that were not part of his particular denomination here in what's called the Cane Ridge Revival. Uh, he, he, in 1804, published The Last Will and Testament. The Last Will because... When he got kicked out of his presbytery, he and some other like-minded people formed a new one. But they realized after a few years, wait a minute, we're still part of the problem. So they decided to devolve the presbytery and called on Christians to take the Bible as the only guide to heaven. They called for a congregational form of church structure, for preachers and people to pray more and dispute less, and they took the name of Christians for themselves. Another part of the, uh, uh, the young country, 
Thomas Campbell, another Presbyterian minister, was kicked out of his church for uh, opening up communion to Presbyterians who weren't part of the right Presbyterian denomination. And he, he after some time of trying to ref get the church to hear his views, uh, issued the declaration and address, declaring that Christ intended the church to be one, that divisions were evil, and the basis for unity was the authority of the Bible. These then were really the key heart of the principles of what we call the Restoration Movement. Thomas Campbell's son, Alexander, who was also a Presbyterian minister, worked together with his father and then later with Barton Stone to convey, to communicate, to publish, disseminate, through the printed word and thousands of miles on horseback, uh, preaching and teaching, these concepts promoting the restoration of the church. Last person on this, re oh, this was his study. He was quite a scholar. Uh, next slide. He was recognized as being an influential person in society. And this historical uh, plaque was put up outside his home. Uh, Walter Scott was important. He was an evangelist, and he was able to, in simple form, uh, didn't have to have a lot of big education and a lot of catechisms. Just very simply, he was able to share what it meant to become a Christian and to live out the faith. Sorry, get back to my... I'm going to end by just some what's called key phrases or slogans of the Restoration Movement. Uh, one of them is, in faith, unity, in opinions, liberty, in all things, love. So, in faith, unity, borrowed on an earlier slogan uh, in the Protestant movement that, that said, in essentials, unity, opinions, li opinions liberty, all things, love. But found out from experience that if you use, you focus on what are the essentials and you start getting into again, where do we divide the line in order to determine what the true church is. Faith, however, is, it can't be negotiated. If we don't place our faith in Jesus, if we're not born again, if we don't live out the faith, then there is no basis spiritually to have unity. Uh, there are a lot of things in which we as Christians can agree to disagree. Just how the end times will play out. Uh, the role of spiritual gifts in the church today and so on and so forth. In all things love, that's very important. Uh, Jesus' teaching was strong on love, the greatest commandment. And he wanted that for his bride, the church. Another uh, slide, please. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Very simply, where the Bible is clear, has clear teachings, we need to stand up and teach it and practice it. Where the Bible either doesn't address it because it wasn't an issue in the time it was written, or there's differing opinions that sincere Christians can hold, and we cannot claim the Bible says Perhaps the elders of the church can say, this is our understanding of it, and this is our practice here. 
but we can't do a thus saith the Lord. Can't claim to be the Pope, in other words. An important concept here, for the world to be one, Christians must be one. That goes back to John 17, 21, 23, where on the night he was betrayed, Jesus prayed to the Father, may my followers be one as you and I are one, so that the world may know that you sent me. That's the evangelistic power of being one. Division, we're all divided. That doesn't point to us being the family of God. It doesn't point to, to Jesus Christ. So the world may know that you sent me and that you love them like you love me. This is really important. The scripture, the simple church, and the oneness, the concept of unity are all key to the restoration movement. Today, there are about 5,000 congregations like KCC spread across this country, and there's many more in other parts of the world. Today, I... Uh, I just pray that God will, uh, things that aren't that important that I've run through today, those can fade away. That's not so key. But I, I do pray that if either you are actively involved in this church and haven't understood quite how we came about and why we still practice these principles, that you might be encouraged. And if you haven't been really aware, you're maybe new to this church, maybe this will give you some thought as to why we take the stand. Uh, so there's one more slide, I think. Uh, we don't claim to be the only Christians, but we sincerely desire to be seeking to be Christians only. We don't want to put up barriers, whether it be in our name that points to a person or method of government or in our practices that uh, people can't find evidence for in the Bible. We, we want to be known as simply Christians only. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us, for your plan from the beginning back in the garden to restore us to you, our relationship to you. Thank you for your son and for his being willing to give his body to allow us to, through faith in what he, who he is and who, what he did, to be joined together as part of your family, to be part of your body, to be your bride. Lord, may your spirit convict us of the importance of needing to try and uh, honor that both in our teaching and in our lives as individuals and as a church. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.